This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled Passion on the Path, recorded November 10th, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, our topic this morning is Passion on the Path. <laughs> but we want to uh, restrict the meaning of passion here a little bit, because we're not just talking about any sort of passion. We're talking about passion in relation to some calling, to be passionate about some activity or person in life, to have a sense that for something that you're supposed to do or that you're interested in doing, that you have a passion for. And then what happens to that on a spiritual path, especially uh, when you hear these teachings about we have to practice detachment, we have to practice surrender, we have to let go of our own will, and so forth and so on. So I also want to say here that I'm going to be using relative language, which always falsifies the truth anyway, but I need the freedom here just to wail away. So don't hold me to what I say here in a technical sense. So let's begin with what is this universe all about, this cosmos all about to begin with. This Somebody else asked about this. I said, we're not going to talk about it now, but, you know, when I sit here and I got a topic going, teachings just come here, so I can't do anything about that. So if we look at the universe as a whole, and we, now we have to speak poetically, what is it? The Hindus call it the play, the leela of God, the play of the divine, like a, a stage play. Or like music or something like that. It's a show that's put on by the divine. The Buddhists, the southern Buddhists, are reluctant to talk about these things, but the farther north you go, particularly getting to Tibet, you get some wild expressions. This whole cosmos is a teacher. And all the five elements, which in their worldview make up the cosmos, are all teaching, and they're all teaching the truth. They're all teaching the truth about what the cosmos is. So, again, it's a kind of demonstration, a kind of display. The Christians and the Jews talk about this is all an overflowing of God's love. It's, uh, as Dionysius the Arapagate says, uh, uh, an early Christian mystic, a, a guy can't contain himself. And Dionysius knows very well it's not a himself and much prefers terms like the nameless and so forth. The trouble is when we talk about love and the nameless, in our language anyway, you know, it sounds weird. So all this is an outpouring, a spontaneous outpouring, an overflowing of this love. You have a, uh, a sense of, you know, somebody turning on a faucet and nothing will contain it. It just keeps flowing over from form to form to form. The uh, Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics talk about it all spilling down through these bowls that keep breaking and the light keeps spilling down out into the whole cosmos. My favorite uh, expression of this comes from the Islamic tradition, the Sufis, and they talk about everything is a divine self-disclosure. And the idea here is that this whole cosmos exists in potentia in the divine, in Allah. But because it's all there together, it can't manifest. If everything's all together, nothing shows up. So you have to manifest through time, you know, a little here, a little there, a little here, a little here. Otherwise, 
if we took all the forms in the world and compressed everything together, there would be no form. So it's an unveiling here, 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 here. So we could say that the cosmos itself, to put it in poetic terms, is a passionate creation. We could even go so far as to say God can't help himself doing it. No choice in the matter. And yet, at the same time, there's complete freedom of choice. Just the way there's that freedom in the moment of creativity. And I like to compare it to a jazz performance. Because a jazz performance, especially the old bebop kind of jazz that I grew up on, has a structure. It's not just chaos. Within that structure, though, there's complete freedom. And the musician, him or herself, does not know what they're going to play next if they're improvising in that structure. That is the freedom. It's not predetermined. It wasn't laid out at the beginning of time. And even if we look at the evolution of music, let's say, or anything else, even that structure itself evolves. So the the structure isn't even fixed. So there's always pattern and freedom, structure and freedom, discipline and freedom. They, They are not opposites. In our culture, we always think, well, either you're free or you're restrained. And the truth of the matter is that they're not opposites at all. You can't have one without the other. So all these questions about is the universe predetermined, is there free will and all that, the cosmos transcends those sorts of determinations. It is utterly free, and yet it is utterly patterned, and it is utterly beautiful. So let's just accept that as the testimony of the mystics for now. Given that, let's then ask the question, what's the problem? How come we don't know this, and how our ignorance causes us suffering? So let's look at some of the fundamental ways that people experience this calling to create, to love, because they're ultimately the same thing. And before when we were talking, we mentioned a calling to do something artistic, a musician, a poet, a writer, uh, an actor, whatever. We talked about a calling that you might have as just a vocation, not necessarily artistic in the way we think of in this culture. I had a friend who I went to high school with, and he wanted to be a lawyer. It's amazing. I mean, from the day I met him, and all through high school, it never varied, and he was very smart. He worked very hard. He went on to Harvard. He became a lawyer. Years later, I've lost track of him, but I heard through a mutual friend that he'd become a very successful lawyer. He lives on Park Avenue in New York, you know, drives a Mercedes, and whatever. very happy. Never wavered. Knew, you know, all the rest of us, teenagers, agonizing over what we wanted to become when we grew up, and this and that. Some people know that, you know, from a very early age. That's a kind of calling. And then we talked about intimate relationships, particularly uh, falling in love, passionate, romantic relationships. Again, there's an interesting thing about that. We don't choose to fall in love. It's a kind of a calling in that sense. And you all know that because, you know, there's some time in your life where your friends introduced you to somebody and said, this person's just right for you. And they were wonderful and they had all these great qualities and you appreciated them, but it just wasn't there. It wasn't happening, you know. You, you couldn't make yourself fall in love. 
And then, of course, you turn around, and who do you fall in love with? <laughs> you wish it, you could have stopped it. <laughs> in, our, in our opening discussion here, I think we missed actually one that is so fundamental we don't even think of it, and that is the calling to create a family, children, which is so deep-rooted. You know, we don't think of it as being creative. We just take it for granted. But it is rooted in our biology, as we find out when we get to be teenagers, and how so, right? And we don't always control it. We have a very, very difficult time controlling it. It is so fundamental. If you think about that, the sexual drive, the sexual urge itself, which none of us, I mean, really chooses, and it's such a force in our life that, you know, no matter what's going on, wars and plagues and this and that, human life continues to reproduce itself, create itself. And then there's the calling among the parents, and not everybody has it equally distributed to then nurture that family, raise that family, create that family, create that child, particularly in the case of human beings. You know, children are very malleable, not completely so. I mean, they always have that core of who they are that we can never touch. But, uh, you know, it's a, so much of human life is passed on through culture, which is then the parents and the society's responsibility. So really, uh, all of our life, if you look at it, has at its root this kind of creativity, if we're using creativity in the broadest sense, not just an artist. And this kind of impulse that does not come from our egos. Then, because we're human beings, because we develop, uh, or we have the capacity for thought, and because our thought is, you know, primarily dramatic thought, later it becomes logical thought, but we start out in life, you know, thinking like storytellers. And in, in human history, from at least from a modern point of view, that was the earliest form of communal thought. It's telling stories around the campfire and then telling myths. This is our dramatic urge to define the cosmos in terms of some sort of story and then to define our lives as some sort of story within that story. And... In each of our own stories, the star is I. It's perfectly natural. And, by the way, perfectly wonderful, isn't it? I mean, storytelling is creativity. It's art. But somewhere along the line, we lose track of the fact that it is a story. We start to believe it is real. And we start to believe that there really is an I. And we lose track of the fact that there really is not an I. All there is is God. All there is is consciousness and these forms, this experience. And because we think that there's an I, then we think there's another. And because we think that there must be some I here, we wonder what it is, and we start to think, well, it must be this body or these thoughts or these emotions, and we start to draw... Uh, distinctions and boundaries and lines, and we set up this whole uh, game, which is perfectly fine, except we take all these things to be real. And then we're stuck. We've imagined a story, a uh, great story, horrifying, sometimes terrifying, sometimes wonderful, sometimes poignant, sometimes full of love and intimacy, sometimes violence, sometimes, you know, and this and that. Uh, really quite spectacular if you want to think of it in terms of a play. Wow, what a playwright. I mean, they got everything in this one, you know. <laughs> but the trouble is, we're stuck in it now. It, it becomes our hell because it seems to be real. No longer a story. No longer can we appreciate it like a story. And then we don't know how to get out. 
In a nutshell, that is what a spiritual path from a mystic's point of view is all about. If we had not lost track of the fact of what's really going on here, if we had not fallen for our own stories, and particularly the fact that this story centers around a character named I, there'd be no reason for our spiritual path. It'd be totally unnecessary. It only arises as a response to this delusion that we fall into. So all this is kind of a prelude, so now we can talk about the, the practical stuff, if you like. Here you are, you're an artist, you're fallen in love, you got kids, you have a calling in life, some passion for your job or whatever, and you're walking a spiritual path. How do we put them together? I think that's really the practical question we want to get to. That's why I wanted to be real loose in my terminology, because we do have to understand it's just a matter of seeing through this veil Nothing else has to be changed. We would not want to give up having families, creativity, falling in love, all those things. That is not the problem. So what is the problem? This I in the story, let's just call it the ego. The ego, in a certain sense, and don't take me literally here, in a certain sense, begins to steal or tries to steal, the creative power of consciousness itself. It begins to seize upon it and think, I am doing this. And loses track that it is not doing it. It would be if you could imagine a play, um, just that comes to mind, what's that Arthur Miller play? Death of a Salesman. Loman was named the salesman character? Willie Loman. If in the middle he starts to think he's writing this play, and he's not, but he thinks he is. Doesn't mean the play was completely predetermined. I mean, by the time the actors are playing with it, it's pretty much predetermined, although they give, each give it their own interpretation and stuff. But it was though Arthur Miller was writing it as we go along, which he did at one point. He sat down in a typewriter there and he wrote it. And before it was written, it wasn't pre-written. It was, it's being written. Do you see what I'm talking about? But the ego is not the one who is writing it. The ego is being written. You can test this, by the way, just by watching your own thoughts. This is one of the reasons we meditate. We want to get good at watching our own thoughts. Who thinks your thoughts, even about yourself? And you can try to do this as an experiment. Try to think up your own thoughts. Well, I'm thinking this thought. Well, who thought that I'm thinking this thought? Who thought that thought? I'm trying to trace it back down. This is an investigation you kind of think you can do. But in any case, what appears to happen is that at least in some areas of life, as we grow up, we feel we are doing things. And our society encourages us to feel this way, which is fine, by the way, as part of the play, you know. So your parents say, don't throw the food, Johnny. You're going to be punished if you throw the food. Well, pretty soon you learn not to throw the food. Oh, good, proud me. I can do that. See, I can stop throwing food. Or maybe you learn how to throw food and get away with it and blame your sister. <laughs> I said stop throwing that. It wasn't me. It was my little sister who can't speak yet in my chair. We, get, we start to be able to manipulate the world a little bit. I mean, we think, you see, the ego, the eye thinks it's doing it. And as we grow older, it gets elaborated and so forth and so on and, and so on. 
And of course, because we think we can do these things, that it is possible, then we are in perpetual conflict with the world because we are constantly trying to get the world to behave the way we want it to behave, to shape it the way we want it to come out and so forth. And the world is constantly refusing. I mean, there are times when we do a little dance together, it seems it's all going fine, and then suddenly the world stomps on your toes. You go, ow! So we're in this endless, endless struggle to become happy by, we think, arranging everything in the world to suit us. It's very interesting. Since the nature of the world is change, if for one minute you could arrange everything to suit you perfectly, I mean so that at, let's see, at uh, one o'clock this afternoon, you are going to attain the perfect house, the perfect garden, the perfect spouse, the perfect children, the perfect family, the perfect job, the perfect cat. The perfect, I don't know what you like, crepe Suzette being served for your, you know what I mean? At that moment, everything is perfection. It's got nowhere to go at one minute after one. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> Just because it's changing. I mean, not because it's evil or something. So when we stop to think about this, you know, rationally, we, we can understand that this is futile, but... We have this conditioning since at least the time we were children, and if you have other worldviews that go back, uh, you know, previous lifetimes and whatever, and that's unimportant, is to recognize, oh, we have a moment of lucidity about this, but then we're back in this conditioning, this conditioning. The conditioning is to grasp onto things that we think will enhance and protect this fictitious eye, push away those things, keep it bay that threaten it, and so forth. And it gets very complicated. It's not just physical things. It becomes psychological things. We need approval. We need this, that, security, safety, all sorts of, you know, issues and stuff. Now, what happens in normal experience? There are certain facets of life that, because they're so powerful, start to show us that we don't really control them. So sex is a good one starting as a teenager, but then moving into a more mature sense of falling in love. And I think we just we were saying before, and everybody recognizes, you do not choose to fall in love. It has this feeling that arises up within you. The outcome of that, I mean, if it's going to go anywhere, is the drive to have a family and so forth. And that's something that arises within us. We seem to have a choice, well, I'll put it off until after I graduate from college and so forth and so on. I think particularly women, you know, the biological clock starts to run out and everybody gets all worried because they thought, oh, we could ignore it, but you can't, it's like the tides or something. Not everybody, not everybody's called to have children. I don't have children. I must say in my life, I never really felt that calling. If we have an artistic calling, it's not something we choose to do. You don't take a one of those what vocational tests after high school, do you know what I mean? And and see what you're good at, and then one of them's list a poet. Oh, you'd make a good poet, yes. <laughs> anyway, it's something that is a there's a feeling we're called to it. And you can even look back and you can see uh, little kids, you know, before they learn that there are rewards to being an artist and you have status and you know what all of this and stuff. Uh, kids spontaneously play act. They go dress up in their parents' clothes and uh, they stage little plays for their parents. 
But, you know, it's, it's not coming from the ego. But then the ego tries to hijack it. It tries to seize it, to grab it. I am in love. I am in love with my soulmate that I finally found because we were meant to be this way. <coughs> because I was meant to be happy, obviously. <laughs> if it goes on from there and you fall in love and get married, maybe it's no longer, well, my soulmate was meant to make me happy, but now I've got kids. They are meant to make me happy because they're the greatest kids in the world. I mean, little Johnny is a genius, you know. No other family on the block has a kid quite like mine. <laughs> and so we still continue to make ourselves the center of what's going on, this eyes center. This is all happening in order to make me happy. If we are creative, we're going to be a poet or a musician or something like that. Well, a poet these days, nobody expects to get successful being a poet, I don't think. But a musician or an artist, I mean, an actor or something like that. Then it's not just the joy of getting up there and doing your little performance. It's you want the rewards, the goodies. You want the fame. You want the fortune. You want to be recognized. So this, this grasping enters into it in all these ways. Uh, even if it's just a, a, quote, ordinary job, like my friend who became the lawyer. Do you know what I mean? To win a case, I'm going to win the case. If you lose a case, I've lost the case. And the more cases I can win, uh, you also get the goodies, you know, the, get the recognition, the money, and so forth. So now we're on a spiritual path. The first thing we have to do is to recognize that, no, finding our soulmate is not going to make us happy forever and ever. We're not going to ride off into the sunset. Having the kids is uh, not going to make us happy forever and ever. You know, some turn out okay, some not so okay, this and that. And, you know, even as you get older, even as you become an adult and middle-aged, there's always something wrong, you know. What's my wife? You have to wear those jeans and then you bring a tie with you. I'm 55 years old, Mom. It's okay, you know. No, no. Something to fix still. You know? Make perfect. Get this perfect. And then... As uh, artists, there's this tremendous suffering that goes with that. If you have this demand that you be recognized, that you be appreciated, you know, that's why particularly in the last couple hundred years, there's this mystique of the suffering artist and no one understands them and da, 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 you know, because the demands are so high. I am really special. You have to recognize how special I am. So there's this tremendous grasp, the wanting approval, being attached to your little work, and now you have to send it out into the world. It's like sending your baby out into the world. What if they spit on it, you know? <laughs> but if you keep it here, no one's ever going to know how great you are and what a wonderful artist you are. So just turmoil, turmoil. So we at least recognize that we are never going to become happy through doing these things. It doesn't mean at all we have to give up doing them. Some people do give up doing them. Especially if it wasn't a strong calling, especially it was something that the society told you you should be doing. It wasn't something coming up from here. So if you've been going to work just to please your parents and please society and all that, and to put on a good front and you have the house and the two cars and all that, and you're on a spiritual path, a lot of people do chuck that because they realize they didn't want it in the first place. Other people wanted it for them. That's not really what they were about. So there is some sorting out going on here. But the things that we are passionate about, to get back to the topic, 
our children, our lovers, our jobs, if it was a true calling, our art and so forth. No, there's no reason to give that up if we can use that skillfully. And the two aspects of it that work for us are two things. One is the intensity of the emotion because it makes us focus. You know, we don't focus on things we don't feel intensely about. We focus on things we feel intensely about. And because it has already built in this quality that's always letting us know we're not in total control. We don't control falling in love. We don't control how our kids turn out. We don't control even our own artistic creations. That's why artists go through periods of dead time, you know, nothing's happening, writers block, and so forth and so on. And we know, if we're at all honest, especially I'm going to focus on art here, because it's sharper and more vivid, but it's true of the other areas of life. When things are going well, it's a lot to do with us being out of the way. We feel like we aren't doing it anymore. Actors will tell you, there are always those nights during a performance, especially performances, you know, like in Broadway, where they do it night after night, you know, if it's successful, God forbid, that goes on for years. But there are always those nights where maybe they've done it a hundred times and suddenly magic, it's just happening. They don't know how it happened. Musicians play and suddenly it's just coming through them. They don't know how it happened. Writers, I used to do a little writing, screenwriting, stuff like that. You know, when it's going well, the characters take over. They start talking. You're just a, uh, a secretary, you know, transcribing their dialogue. It's wonderful. Effortless. When things are working, when we are in love, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? We have that sense. That it's, it's like a dance. It's moving through us. And we can see in those situations... The joy that's already there. It's not about getting something. It's not about controlling it. And if we pay attention, which is the first principle of spiritual path, we start to notice this. We start to notice the more we try to control our vocation, our passion, our art, or whatever it is, the more we suffer. The more we can surrender to it, the happier we are. It goes completely against our conditioning, so we have to make a commitment to watch and observe this again and again and again. And then in specific instances, we can find places where we see that conditioning, that grasping popping up, and we can practice <coughs> detachment. And detachment simply means don't grasp at this. doesn't mean push anything away. Detachment is neither grasping nor pushing away. Any sense of being aloof, stoic, rising above it all is a pushing away, a subtle pushing away, but sometimes not so subtle. It's just a negative form of attachment. I'm attached to not having this experience, so I'm going to rise above it, push away. It is that detachment which is the total to surrender to it. Whether that is, means when everything's going great, like in a love affair, or whether you're in the fire of everything going the opposite. And you know how quickly love affairs can turn around. It means whether everything's going great in terms of your art, everybody's appreciating and they're telling you, oh my gosh, I read your story. That was so wonderful. And you get the, I don't know, palm 
Tree Award. I'm shooting myself some award for short stories or whatever. What? Goodwin, Palm Tree Award. What? The Palm Tree Award. That sounds like a Goodwin. Yeah, so that sounds like a literary award, doesn't it? Anyway, something like that. Or when nobody likes your story, when you can't get it published, you keep getting the rejection letters back. The joy, it doesn't come from there. It's as you're writing the story. And as you're writing the story, if you are really surrendered, you aren't writing the story. You have just lit that veil and you're just getting now a little experience of what is the truth about what is going on all the time, everywhere. So if you are now writing the story, you go, you send it off, you get a rejection letter, you come back, you roll that sheet into your, no, you don't do that anymore, do you? You sit down in front of your computer, flip on, you know, bring out a hibernation or whatever, and it's happening. What the, the rejection letter, a palm tree award, whatever is irrelevant, irrelevant, totally irrelevant. So it all comes from this paying attention, observing, particularly in those activities that we feel passionate about, because that will focus our attention. We won't be distracted. You know, when you poured your heart and soul in a little short story and you send it off and you get a rejection slip that comes in the mail, you are not going to be distracted for the rest of that day, I guarantee you. If your lover calls up and says, you know, we got to break it off, you are not going to be distracted for the rest of the day. If the police call up and say, you know, your, your kids in the Huskow, come get them, you are not going to be distracted for the rest of the day. You're not going to say, oh, yeah, okay, well, maybe this afternoon if I have time, I'll pop down there and you're going to forget, you know, because you went shopping or something. <laughs> no, it's true. The intensity of the situation makes us focus. And we can use that intensity. We watch. We just watch. Don't change anything. Just watch what's going on. What is really going on here? And we have to be willing to be in the fire to do that. But since we can't get out of the fire short of, I don't know, you know, drugging ourselves or taking a trip to Europe or whatever, all we have to do is stay put. It will reveal itself. The nature of our problem will reveal itself first at the level that, oh, well, it's the grasping, the seeking the reward, the identification with what is going on. I am the lover. I am the artist. I am the parent. All this is the source of our suffering. And then beyond that, there's the insight that all of this is imaginary. I mean, literally, that it is a story being created in the mind. You cannot find anything called parent and child apart from the thought. When you have a child, your wrinkle doesn't wrinkle into a thing that says, I'm a parent now, written on your skin. And the child doesn't have some label on a child. No, it's a, it's a thought we project onto ourselves and to those around us. It literally, it's imaginary, a label. Wonderfully useful. And, you know, you can't write stories without this. But let's not mistake it to be real. And ultimately, you see, there was no I, apart from the thought of I, to begin with. It wasn't having a, a really even a matter of surrendering the I. 
You know, Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, wrote a nice little pamphlet called Whoso Knoweth Himself Knoweth His Lord, which is taken from a Sufi saying in Islam, that if you know yourself, you know God, because ultimately that's who your true nature is. And he said, in Sufism, they talk about fana, passing away of the self. And the whole Sufi path is, is talked in terms of fana. And he says, this is an oversight. He says, there is no self. So if we talk about fana, the passing away of the self, we are being polytheists, which is the worst thing you can do, be in Islam, you know. We're setting up something besides God. So there's no passing away of the self. And if you understand this, you understand God. And if not, not. That's how he ends it. He's <laughs> not really criticizing the other Sufis. You know, every teaching, there's a further teaching because every teaching falls short of the truth. But this is very important. It, we see through this. And all we're seeing then is what is happening anyway. And since we didn't have a choice whether we fell in love or not, we're still going to fall in love. We didn't have a choice whether to become an artist or not, or write this poem or not, we're still going to do it. We didn't have a choice to raise families or not, we're still going to do it. It's not up to us. Not because our lives are totally predetermined and we don't have any free will and all that. It's because we aren't there. There's one will in the world, one movement of the Tao, one manifestation of Buddha nature, <coughs> just one, not two, not three, not a whole bunch, all conflicting. And it's going to go on. And the only difference is we are going to see it and we're going to see its true nature. And we are going to see it like a, a play, a movie, a piece of music, a poem that is beyond any individual human being's capacity to ever think of. Although our own capacities are all tied into that capacity. The play to end all plays, you know. The music that incorporates all music and is also open-ended because we never arrive. You know, just because Beethoven wrote a great symphony doesn't mean music stops. So, the whole trick comes from paying attention. You've got to watch. You have got to convince yourself in your own experience. You see, when you are wanting approval for something, it's a work of art. You want approval from your lover for, you know, because you brought flowers tonight, the night she picked to tell you to get lost, you know. <laughs> you want uh, thanks from your kids because, you know, for, well, for a lifetime, but something specific, you know. You finally bought them the first new car, a, a nice little spiffy Ford something, and they're disappointed because it wasn't whatever the, you know. Anyway, whatever it is, you want approval, you're attached to something coming in the future. That's the moment right there. That's the moment to become free. Because you see, it's not what the other person's doing. It's your expectation, your insistence, the world be the way I want it to be. You're grasping onto this moment. Letting that go does not mean you let go or do anything about the feelings you're having because you will have sadness, shock, all that. <clears throat> It's simply letting go of the demand that the world, in this particular situation, be the way I want it. That's surrender. And then beyond that, you see, there's nothing more for you to do. This isn't a new program, a new way to approach life and uh, win friends and influence people. It's to surrender. And in that surrender, 
you see the mystery. And that's the only mystery part of what mystics are talking about. That's the only mystery part. All the rest of it is perfectly rational, obvious, and logical. We don't want to hear it sometimes. It's difficult for us to see it because we're so heavily conditioned. That's the moment where there's nothing I can do. You realize that the I can do. And then everything gets done. So I hope for those of you who raised this topic, it was helpful. Uh, anybody want to follow up on any aspect of it? Yeah. Well, I'd like to share that <clears throat> off and on for the last 40 years, I've been a quote artist. And um, doing that, this has really touched home because it's made a big difference. My, my relationship, my ego relating to art has really gone through some interesting transitions. And when I sort of I guess in high school, I, I did very poor, but something sparked me in college. And I started producing painting and sculpting more. And I found then, and I had a very poor self-image, that people's approval of my art really made a lot of difference to my self-esteem and me. You know, they'd like it, and of course, then I was better for it. And over time, I, I found it embarrassing, and I was still driven to produce off and on, but I... I didn't want the credit, and I realized it wasn't me. It was almost like a brush held in a greater hand. How can, how can I produce something that wasn't all calculated and pre-planned before? I mean, it was much of my work was abstract, but it would, uh, would just flow through me. And I have to admit that, of course, I still feel good on occasion where somebody approves or likes it, but it's greatly diminished. It's almost like not wanting to take credit. Just knowing that it brings somebody joy, even if they don't know I did it, is is uh, feeling fulfilled. At any rate. Uh, Here's a little trick. <clears throat> feel good or bad. Are, you see, those are labels, good and bad. You're going to feel something. We hang labels, good and bad, on what we feel. And then what do we do? We push away the bad, and we try to hang on to the good. It's not just out there we're grasping. We're trying to grasp at our own states, our own feelings, our own emotions, and trying to push things up. Not only are we are in conflict with the whole world, we're in conflict with ourselves constantly. Why can't we just appreciate both those feelings? I'm not call them good or bad. Those feelings are there for a purpose. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they weren't an accident. There are no accidents in God's work, by the way. It's all spontaneous, but it's not accidental. So I'm just taking a further refinement. Now we really want to look into every form of grasping or pushing away. Even the subtlest manipulation based on the subtlest sense of self. And when I say subtle, this doesn't take any sort of brain surgeon. I mean, just it's subtle only because of our distraction. The less distracted we are, the more we get used to making this kind of inquiry and stuff, the more obvious it all becomes. In fact, this is why uh, saints get so subtle about their own conditioning that even the littlest sin, just some little venial, tiny little sin, they realize stands between them and all of God. And people have a tendency to say, oh, come on, knock it off, you're human. So, you know, you, you, you ate a little meat on Friday. I mean, forget it, you know. But that's not the point. <laughs> it's not about eating meat on Friday. It's seeing that even if there's a little sense of self there, it hides all of God. So it's even being willing to feel whatever feelings arise, if your work is accepted or it's rejected. Okay? That's not up to you. And then you'll appreciate it all. Or I should be a little careful. Then there will arise an appreciation for everything. Inside and outside. Yeah. As, as listening to you, uh, a wordplay came to me. 
is I am in the way. I'm in the way because I'm I don't believe I'm in the way. So <laughs> I see. Okay. Very good. But if I if I can see that I am in the way, then I simply am. Yeah. And it and the creativity comes out of that amness. I, I don't want to say I have a self. <laughs> Uh, Tom Kurtzka, a lot of you know, had an awakening. And it was just after a retreat we were on. And all through this retreat, he was struggling against these eye stories, you know, and everything else. He's been able to see, oh, the sound of the bird, the naked experience of bird. And when we say bird, it's a labeling of it. And, you know, all the stuff that we try to see through careful observation, meditation. And then the eye story kept arising. And he kept, oh, no, it's, it's ruined my state, my pure perception. You know. And finally, Andrea, who's another teacher here, said to him, well, what's wrong with the eye story? Why are you trying to push that away? The eye story is just like any other thought. It's just thought. And that just opened something up for him and then precipitated you know, what led up to his awakening. Who is thinking the eye story is bad? I mean, the ego, in order not to be exposed, always wants to step back, step back, step back. Oh, I understand these teachings. Oh, really? Good. (laughs) That's why you need a teacher often, because the teacher can spot that and knows how to rip the rug out from under you. Yes, Damien? It seems kind of contradictory because you say, like, it's not to not feel the feelings that come when something happens. But at the same time, if you're practicing not being attached, and if you actually do realize that non-attachment, then when that thing happens, it seems like it's bound to affect how you're going to react, what reaction is going to come. It's contradictory as long as we equate suffering and certain feelings. Mm -hmm. But suffering is not feeling. This is a hard thing to understand. I mean, even our language, they're built together. Mm -hmm. Sorrow does not automatically give rise to suffering. Mm -hmm. And I've said this before, that you can see this very easily when you go see a sad movie and you come out crying. And you paid six, seven dollars to go see this sad movie to have the experience of sadness because you like the experience of sadness. It's not suffering. Do you see what I mean? Big hit movies are built on giving people the experience of sadness, but in a situation where they are safe, so it's not happening to me, so I feel free to be sad, to weep, to cry. We crave to experience, in fact, sorrow, deep sorrow. You know, uh, better the movie, the more it tugs your heartstrings. I mean, you know, a little sorrow, well, it was okay. Big sorrow, oh, so moving that movie. I, I could go see it a hundred times, and they do, and then you got a hit. You know? <laughs> so, see, that's why it's not really a contradiction. We used to have an expression in Hollywood, leave them laughing or crying, and you got a hit. It doesn't matter which, you know, <laughs> whether they're happy or sad. I mean, you know, it's nothing to do with it. If you think this sadness, this heartbreak I'm feeling, i got to push it away. Well, the suffering is you're in conflict, trying to push it away, trying to do something you cannot do. All suffering boils down to you're trying to do something you cannot do. What about when it's so obviously, I mean, it seems like in certain circumstances, it's obviously either you react because you're attached or you don't react because you're not attached. For example, like let's say I have a cassette tape of some like live recording and it's the only one, you know that I have and that I can't replace it. And, and I loan it to someone kind of reluctantly, well, take care of it, and their tape player eats it, right? Right. And, and, let's, <laughs> and let's say I'm like, I'm, I was really attached to that tape, and they tell me that it's gone, and, and I, I suffer tremendously. Or I'm, I realize that that tape is just, you know, 
it's impermanent and I, you know, realize it can disappear anytime and they tell me that and I'm like, well, that's okay. I've got other tapes, you know, and it, it, it's no big deal, you know. Oh, well, it depends on the situation. That's why I say it's not a new programming how to respond to life. Each instance will be different. It might be in that situation where it was really a fluke kind of thing and the mind immediately starts saying, oh my God, your machine ate my only da-da-da. You can look right at the thoughts right there and the thoughts dissolve. You won't even have much of a reaction. You might have some reaction though. Let's say you'd loaned this person tapes before and their machine ate it and you've been reluctant to loan it and the person says, oh no, no, I've got a new machine now. I promise. I know how to do it right. Uh And then anger will arise. You see what I mean? Now this is part of the play of the relationship. And the point is you can appreciate and enjoy the anger but if the you're anger, not attached. But the anger is based on attachment. No, it's based on a game. Look, it's like um, we set up a game, a game of soccer, right? And we choose up teams, everybody in the room here. George uh, is the referee. And, uh, and we, we play the game. And you score a goal for our team, and we all congratulate you. And the other team boos, and we go back and forth. And then at the end of the game, we pack up our stuff and, and leave. I mean, what would be the fun of playing the game if nobody showed any emotion or reaction? You know, somebody scored a goal. I mean, it'd be like a zombies playing a game or something. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you know what I mean? In fact, if you wanted to program this game, you'd have to give your characters human responses to make it interesting, right? Right. So situations will arouse emotions in us, but suffering is not emotion. But, if, but going back to that example, if you're totally unattached to that tape, and they tell you that, you're just like, oh, so what? Right? No you reason. may. You may. I don't know. This is the point. You have an expectation of how things uh, should come out. And that is coming from your eye thinking, how can I avoid feeling any suffering? And you associate suffering with feeling angry or sad or something like that. So to you, well, gee, if I could be totally attached, one whole range of feelings would not arise here. I mean, well, I, but it's I, also just from my own experience. If, if I'm not attached to something and, and I lose it, I don't care. That's right. We grasp, we push away, and there are a lot of things we're just neutral about. I mean, Jennifer's been bringing home lots of stuff from her mother's estate that she's very attached to. Me, I... (laughs) 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 They're starting to pile up in the closets. (laughs) But this is the point. Just because there are some situations that you don't have any strong reaction to doesn't make that any ideal. This is what I'm saying. That is not what attachment is about. All that means is, for whatever reason, you didn't have a very strong reaction. What I'm saying is you can have a strong emotional reaction to something and not suffer. In fact, one of our problems is we think emotions come labeled positive, negative, either or, and they don't. And then... We're very surprised and confused when we have two supposedly opposite emotions at the same time. When my dog, companion of 13 years, died, I felt really sad and I felt really happy. I was free after 13 years. (laughs) If I wanted to leave work and just get in my car and drive up the coast, I could do it. I didn't have to come home, walk the dog, find somebody to stay with the dog, da-da-da-da-da-da. On the other hand, I was genuinely very, very sad. He would have been a wonderful companion. Now, they're both things together. Together. It was interesting. It was wonderful to experience. I wouldn't trade that experience. 
your dog dies, I mean, I don't feel so, you know, I'll, <laughs> I feel sorry for you, but, but it's not a question of attachment. It's a question of the love for the dog and the circumstances and all that. There was no attachment to the dog. This is why the spiritual path takes practice. Practice, practice, practice. Because the ego is like always devising ways to escape recognizing that it doesn't exist. And so it becomes a little cat and mouse game. The spiritual path itself can become an identity. So now I'm a spiritual seeker. Now I'm getting better. I'm making progress. Oh, yes. And my meditations are getting subtler. subtler. Oh, look at the insights I'm having. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. I'm feeling more compassion for people. Yes, I noticed that. It doesn't bother me now as much when I lose things. Yes, my car was wrecked the other day. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> yes. Boy. Uh, here at the center, we seem to, to put great, great emphasis on realizing that our story is just a story. Uh, and since it would appear that we can't live without a story, as such, uh, what would you, how would you capsulize the gift that comes with the realization that it is just a story? All right. I mean, more than just reduction of suffering, perhaps. In other words, what, what is the gift that we get if we come here and we learn and we get this real realization that we make it up both inside and outside? The gift is appreciating all of life, not just the, the part of life that the story says is good and then not appreciating part that the story says is bad. So that is the gift. So it's the gift of being able to uh, experience Shakespeare as Shakespeare, not, not from the point of view of Hamlet, who's having all sorts of suffering within the play. Do you see what I mean? And, and feeling all the things, because you know, you're not supposed to look at the play aloofly. You're supposed to enter into the play and feel all those things. But also knowing, wow, this is a great play. <laughs> yes? Um. At the end of your talk, you were talking about surrender, and um, that meant a lot to me. I wrote down, I've been holding back the creative flow so much that it's really a painful burden that distorts life and supports suffering. And so underlying that is a fear of surrender, because if I surrender to the creative flow, it's not going to look anything like this. And um, I don't know what it would look like. So That's right. Pretty, yeah. That's right. So part of surrender is being willing to be totally ignorant. It's a great gift to know that you're totally ignorant. You don't have to worry about it. A burden with it. What's going to happen? You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds. That's the truth, isn't it? That is the truth. I mean, a terrorist could blow this building up. We just don't know. We don't know. That is the bottom line. We don't know what's going to happen. But you see, that's the gift. Because if we knew what was going to happen, why bother to live it? You know, it's like movies, don't tell me the outcome. I want to go get the experience myself. So, you see, every, things we think that are negative are truly gifts. And the same thing applies to your creativity. And maybe nothing will come, you see, for a while. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. It's, surrender isn't a gimmick. See, I got writer's blocks, so and now I'll surrender. I'll sit here and surrender. <laughs> you know, no, surrender means if you have writer's block, that's what's going on. And then the next question is, well, how do I surrender? Well, no one can tell you that. 
There is no you to surrender there. I mean, it's a word we use to describe not doing something, really. Is it actually possible that I'm standing in the way? Am I creating a jam for the creative flow, or is that ridiculous? Well, no, you're going to get that, unless I get off on this one. But in a certain sense, <laughs> that's part of the story, too. I mean, the bigger story is the story of hide and seek. Okay. <laughs> and how, you know, if I'm God, I create all this, and then I go get lost in my creation so I can come find myself. That's the greatest story there is, you know? Um, I've been coming to the center for about nine years, and ever since the beginning, when we sit in meditation, I've always had the impulse to get up and do a little dance. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I tell mirrors at home, I do it this time, but I can't do the dance. Because there's a, I, you know, it's like this creative calling. It's like, do it. And um, I hold back. I don't do it. Because it will disrupt everything. <laughs> well, I had a similar experience when I was in college, which goes way back. And I somehow was reading about spontaneity. I wanted to know what spontaneity was. So I'm sitting in my dorm, and I had a coffee cup. No, it was an ashtray on my little table. And I thought, I'm going to pick this ashtray up and just throw it against the wall. I mean, just, you know. But I have to do it spontaneously, see? So you can't decide. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with the ashtray, and I'm trying to figure out how can I do this spontaneously. And I sort of wait for an impulse, you know. But then... <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. I gave up. <laughs> Later in my life, I've thrown ashtrays and said, well, where did that come from? But that's it. So it's an interesting exercise. What does it mean to be spontaneous? Can you plan to be spontaneous? <laughs> I, I urge you to keep with it. I'm not trying to discourage you. I mean, it's a very interesting uh, inquiry to me. I don't know what I'm up to if I suddenly get up. <laughs> well, now you're telling us to make it okay. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, now you've got permission to do it. Yes, right. <laughs> All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay, have some tea, check out the library. If you're interested in this great debate about quantum mechanics, come back next Sunday, same time. Until we see you again, peace to you. Thank mm -hmm. you.